Yeah, good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Scheich. I'm the Deputy Director of the German Historical Institute, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Institute and to the second lecture in our current seminar series on narrating the 19th century new approaches. For the last two or three years, um, we have given our lecture series during the summer term a common theme. Last year, we discussed digital history and the year before, the world of sound during the First World War. For this year's series, we have chosen the 19th century, which traditionally was a testing and sometimes also a battleground for new approaches to historical writing. After a particularly fruitful period of debate during the 1970s, 1980s, however, the 19th century fell somewhat out of fashion. Um, in interest in modern history shifted increasingly towards the 20th century, in particular towards the later end of the 20th century. Only in recent years have there, have there been signs of a revival of interest in the 19th century at all levels of the historical profession. Major new interpretations of the period have been published. I just mentioned the books by Christopher Bailey and Jürgen Osterhammel. And here at the Institute, we see a rising number of PhD students and postdocs who returned to the period between 1815 and 1914. In order to take stock of what has been happening in recent years, we have invited four eminent historians who have just finished or are currently writing general histories of the 19th century to talk to us about the challenges they faced or still face in writing these books and about the opportunities which a newly conceptualized 19th century might hold for, his, for future historical research. Two weeks ago, Richard Evans from Cambridge gave us his version of the 19th century or of a history of Europe from 1815 to 1914. And today it is the turn of Professor Willibald Steinmetz from the University of Bielefeld, whom I want to welcome very warmly to the German Historical Institute. Thank you very much for coming. Professor Steinmetz is no stranger to the Institute. He was a research fellow here in the 1990s when he worked on his Habilitation, which was published in 2001 under the title Begegnungen vor Gericht, eine Sozial- und Kulturgeschichte des englischen Arbeitsrechts, Encounters in Court, a Social and Cultural History of the English Labour Law between 1850 and 1925. By the time he joined the Institute in 1992, he had already written a major book, his doctoral thesis, on rhetorical devices and strategies in English parliamentary debates from the late 18th century to the Second Reform Act of 1867, entitled Das Sagbare und das Machbare zum Wandel politischer Handlungsspielräume, a study which has become a reference text for the wider field of um, discourse analysis, something which um, very few um, PhD theses, I think, achieve. After his return to Germany, he continued to work on his main areas of research, the history of political languages, the history of sociopolitical concepts, and the legal history of labor relations from the 18th to the 20th century. He has published extensively on all of these topics. I just named two of his books, two volumes of collected essays. The first is um, entitled Political Languages in the Age of Extremes and was published in 2011 in our OUP series. The volume has gone through three editions and is available as a paperback. And I just checked on Amazon, so there are still 
um, volumes available, so if you want to go out and buy them, it's really recomm um, a highly recommended book. The second volume which I want to mention in this context is just, is, was just published two years ago in 2013. Um, uh, again, a volume of collected essays um, um, entitled Writing Political History Today. Since 2003, Willy Bald Steinmetz holds the chair of modern and contemporary political history at Bielefeld University, where he was also from 2004 to 2012 the director of the Collaborative Research Center, the political as a communicative space in history, one of these huge research clusters, which in the Bielefeld case, however, um, was instrumental in changing the way German historians write political history today, and um, a research cl cluster which has also to a great extent informed research here at the Institute. When you go on our website um, and check our research profiles, you will see one section which is devoted to um, political history in social and cultural perspective. This is a direct, a direct reflection of what has been happening in Bielefeld um, over the last 10 to 15 years. During the academic year 2015-16, Willibald Steinmetz is a Richard von Weizsäcker Fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, a very prestigious post, as I'm sure you will know. And we are really grateful that he has taken time out from writing his European history to come to London and tell us about the, a few of his ideas for this new next book. So thank you very much again, Willibald, for coming. And the floor is yours now. Okay, thank you very much, Michael, for this very kind introduction. And uh, I would like to begin with a word of thanks to the Institute, which uh, uh, is not unknown to me, as Michael has mentioned, and I'm very attached to this Institute and the people working here ever since I have left it. Uh, so it is always a great pleasure to be here and come back to this place. And I would like to thank the organizers of this lecture series, Felix Römer and Michael Scheich, and also the director who cannot be here today for having invited me to speak on the historiographical challenges of writing a history of 19th century Europe. Uh, now, first of all, why have I undertaken such uh, to write a history of 19th century Europe? Uh, the, history, the reason is that several years ago I committed myself uh, rather thoughtlessly to contribute a volume on that period to a multi-volume world history published in Germany. Uh, the book series is called Neue Fischer Weltgeschichte, New World History, published by the Fischer uh, Verlag. And the original Fischer Weltgeschichte, those of you who have studied German history or have been to Germany might know it. These were small little black uh, paperbacks. Uh, was an extremely <laughs> successful publishing venture but as it was written in the 1960s and 1970s, it has now become uh, somewhat dated, and Fisher uh, publishers decided to edit a new world history in 20 volumes. And I write volume six, which is on Europe in the 19th century, and I committed myself to do so. I can't remember exactly why I agreed to do this, and I will not, I will not tell you when I did this, <laughs> but one reason why it might have appeared attractive to me at the time probably was uh, that this would be an occasion to write a different kind of book from the ones I had written before, uh, namely not a researched book, but a, a book which is more classical history writing in a literary style. So this is a, 
a challenge which I thought might be interesting to do, to write a different kind of uh, book. Um, this means bringing an extremely complex, multifaceted history into the shape of one comprehensive narrative or several interconnected narratives. And these narratives, to be sure, must be based on existing research. It is, after all, academic history, writing, uh, not storytelling. But I'm not doing additional research uh, uh, of my own, except for certain small matters. I have to rely on other people's research most of the time. Uh, at, but I must admit that from time to time, it's really kind of liberating to be able to write like a literary author without the apparatus of footnotes and documentation usually required in academic books, particularly in German academic books. Uh, so it's a kind of liberating to be able to write uh, freely. However, I'm not entirely free to decide how I want to tell this history, as is usual for a collective enterprise of this size, the editors of the Neue Fischer Weltgeschichte have issued a set of non-negotiable rules, or hardly negotiable rules. I will not now question the wisdom of the editors and how should I since I agree to write uh, the book on those terms. However, the editorial guidelines are in part responsible for the challenges and complexities that are the subject of my talk this evening. The most challenging point of all is, get, guess what, the page limit. It has been set at 400 pages, uh, or 450. Uh, these 400 pages should contain the entire history of 19th century Europe, that is, all countries, all major events, all relevant developments, all aspects, the economy, politics, social conditions, religious life, the arts and the sciences, popular culture, everyday life, and so on. So I'm not in the position to ask myself, like uh, Sir Richard Evans apparently did two weeks ago at this place, whether I quote from his abstract, which he gave and which was sent around, I quote Richard Evans, whether it makes sense to try to cover the huge variety of subjects that have formed the focus of historical research in recent decades, quote Evans. I simply have no choice and must cover everything or must try to cover everything. And this, of course, entails the problem of choice. For me, most of the time, it is much more difficult to think about what not to say than what I should like to say. There is another problem caused by the page limit. I have to find a style of writing that somehow navigates between the abstract and the concrete, between sweeping generalizations and telling examples. Um, and this is also difficulty. Uh, but I will no longer dwell on this issue of limited space because you might be more interested to hear something about what I actually do write. There are other editorial guidelines which may give rise to uh, interesting discussions. I will briefly discuss three of them and how I deal with them. One concerns the spatial dimension, basically the question, what is Europe? Where does it end? The second concerns the temporal dimension, the question, what is the 19th century? What, in what sense can it be distinguished from the periods before or afterwards? The question of modernity, also of the de de definition of modernity. And the third requirement concerns the arrangement of chapters, the structure of the book. I will very briefly deal with that third point first and then come back to the other two, the structures of the book. Uh, the editors have opted for a chronological order. I've made a, a very traditional handout, uh, no PowerPoint, sorry for that. I fear I have not, it's just one page. So perhaps uh, it's uh, the structure of the book 
uh, as it is being written. And uh, I will not explain that in extent, so that's why I give it around. And it is in German. I should have mentioned that the book is written in German. Uh, so uh, I don't know whether it will eventually be translated, uh, but uh, it will certainly take some time. So I gave you, give you the structure of the book in German, uh, but uh, I can explain it. I will briefly deal with that point of the structure of the book. The editors have opted for a chronological order of chapters. They want up to five chapters on consecutive periods. And within each chapter, there should be subsections on the economic, the social, the political, and cultural fields. Economic, social, political, and cultural fields. One thing I like about this arrangement, uh, which clearly reminds historians, uh, uh, it's, it has a sort of uh, Hans-Ulrich Wähler touch to it. It's a little bit like Hans-Ulrich Wähler's German Gesellschaftsgeschichte. Uh, uh, Politik, Gesellschaft, uh, Kultur, uh, Wirtschaft. Uh, I use the German terms, but I said the English one in advance. It's a clear departure from a net traditional order which puts the nation state at center stage. As the arrangement is by thematic fields and not by individual countries, I'm forced to think about features and processes that are more or less common to all of Europe without, uh, of course, on the other hand, neglecting national or regional peculiarities. Although the editors want a coverage of all European nations, across the volume as a whole, they concede that a complete coverage within each chapter is inachievable in and would be tedious to read. This leeway, of course, entails the problem of how to decide which countries I should choose as exemplary cases in the somatic subsections. My general policy here is to take one or two obvious cases and one or two less obvious cases. Let's take the example of industrialization. It is impossible to write in, about industrialization without uh, writing about Great Britain and without writing about one or two uh, so-called uh, uh, latecomers, or not really latecomers, but those who were closely behind countries like Belgium or Prussia. But then I choose two or three uh, less obvious cases, for example, in this case, Spain and Portugal, and uh, ask what has been different there, why did things not go that way, although there were certain regions in these countries where industrialization took off, but why was it stopped, and so on. So this is my policy, two or three obvious cases, two or three sort of strange or less obvious cases, and then compare and, and try to make a sort of typology. That's my approach to the, the problem of uh, how to choose countries, because obviously I cannot go to all 20 or so countries in Europe. As there is no time to explain the arrangement of the book in detail, I have brought the rough plan as a traditional handout, and I'm happy to take comments or questions on that in the discussion. Uh, you will see that I have somehow ch cheated the editors and that I have only two major chapters, uh, one dealing with the first half, one uh, dealing with the second half of the century, in which I really discuss all four dimensions mentioned, politics, the economy, the social and the cultural sphere. Uh, and as a frame to these major chapters, there are three small chapters dealing more, more or less exclusively with politics, uh, or in the last case with culture, a chapter on the Napoleonic period, the central chapter on the revolutions and reactions of 1848 to 1852, and a final chapter mainly focused on cultural and societal developments at the turn of the century around 1900. So this is a structure I chose to sort of circumvent uh, the obligation of the 
editors to write five consecutive chapters, each dealing with all four dimensions, which would have been very boring to read. Let me now move on to the other two challenges mentioned. Uh, first, as to spaces and frontiers. The editors want Europe to be understood as a geographically confined unit, a unit that, of course, includes uh, Britain and also the European parts of the Russian and Ottoman empires, but excludes Europe's colonial empires and zones of influence in Asia, Africa, America, and the Pacific. These world regions are dealt with in separate volumes of the book series. The geographical confinement may appear problematic because it runs counter to recent trends in world history writing. Taking the demands of world history seriously, one would have to conceive of Europe as a focal point of intersecting global networks, movements, and flows. It would possibly be no mistake to say that in the 19th century in particular, a majority of global networks, movements, and flows had their epicenter in Europe. And one would also or could also maintain that most of these movements and flows were asymmetric in the sense that all through the 19th century, Europe's influence in other parts of the world uh, were probably much stronger than vice versa. Historians have called the 19th century the European century, alluding to the fact that in that period, Europe dominated the world more firmly than ever before or afterwards, politically, militarily, econ economically, and even demographically. By 1900, Europe reached, reached its highest share of the entire world population ever, nearly 25%. And that figure does not include the millions of emigrants from Europe settling all over the globe, especially in Europe's uh, so-called Western offshoots, that is the United States, Canada, Australia, and so on. If you count these in addition, then you would uh, land at a figure of above 30% of the world population. And that's the highest figures Europe has ever reached, it has gone down since then very much. I don't know where it is now, I think somewhere around eight or 10 or so. All this makes it even more difficult to limit my account to Europe as a container defined in geographical terms. My solution for this conundrum is a pragmatical one. I include encounters between Europeans and non-Europeans insofar as they had a significant impact on structures and perceptions inside Europe or on the balance of power within Europe. For instance, the South American independence movements from about 1808 onwards are dealt with, but I deal with them only from a Spanish and Portuguese perspective and also as a threat to the security system uh, established by the Holy Alliance. I cannot write extensively, however, on the views of the South American revolutionaries and indigenous peoples themselves. Similarly, the Russian expansion into Central Asia or the British colonial administration in India is a topic which, when I deal with judicial or social reform policies in European Russia and Britain, efforts at codification, for example, which were strongly influenced in, or the debate on codification uh, in Britain in the early uh, 1900s, which was strongly influenced by experience the colonial administrators made in India. So in this case, I mentioned uh, the experiences they made in India and, and uh, the, the considerations they had, but I cannot discuss what happened on the spot in India uh, because space is simply not uh, big enough to do this. Thus, my book aspires to be less Eurocentric than most similar books currently on the market, but it cannot replace a proper world history. It's not global history, it's European history. Contemporary concepts of Europeanization or 
of progress and backwardness of an Oriental East and a civilized West are explicitly considered. I regard it as an important task to uh, explain why concepts such as Europeanization emerged at a particular moment in time and how they helped to stabilize or subvert certain institutions, for example, servitude or despotism. Um, to take the example of Europeanization, which is a 19th century term, Europeisierung, um, take the example of the young Prussian army officer Helmut von Moltke, that's the same man who later became chief of staff of the Prussian uh, army. In the years from 1835 to 1839, Moltke had been called by the Sultan in Constantinople as a military expert to help rebuild the Turkish army after the elimination of the Janissaries. And he wrote a book, Briefe über die Zustände und Begebenheiten in der Türkei, Letters on the State of Turkey, published in 1841, in which he reproduced many Orientalist stereotypes, but on the other hand, he often made much more differentiated remarks. Uh, for instance, when he described his first meeting with the Turkish Minister of War in uh, Istanbul, Moltke explicitly used the term Europeisierung, Europeanization, to characterize the minister's habitus and way of thinking even uh, uh, the uh, mobiliar, the ameublement in, in, in his room was Europeanized, he remarked. Uh, so uh, he didn't mean this in a, a non, in, a, in a condescending way. It was a positive remark uh, uh, acknowledging uh, the efforts of reform in the Ottoman Empire going on in, in, this, uh, in this time. It was meant as a compliment to the Turkish general. It is interesting to see, however, that Molke did not always regard Europeisierung as a beneficial process for the population of the Ottoman Empire. He was especially critical of Muhammad Ali's reign in Egypt. Muhammad Ali's government, he wrote, was an artificial Europeanized government, a government, he said, which had reached a new and hitherto unheard of tyranny due to an uneasy combination of efficient administrative regime of tax levies, censuses, and conscription on the one hand, mixed up with traditional corrupt practices of the Orient on the other hand. Um, thus, in Moltke's eyes, Europeanization was not necessarily a good thing. Uh, so he had a very differentiated view of what Europe meant to the people he visited in the Ottoman Empire and to different people within the Ottoman. And this, by the way, is also an example how I uh, introduce encounters between Europeans and peripheral Europeans in this case, or non-Europeans, as in the case of Egypt, at least in a geographical sense, in my book. Another example for the use of the term Europeisierung is the Prussian geographer Karl Ritter. About the same time uh, when Moltke was in Turkey, Ritter applied the term Europeanization as well, and he applied it to world regions as far apart as the Asian parts of Russia behind the Ural Mountains, the plains of South America, and even the Antarctic. He spoke of the Europeisierung, uh, basically of the whole world. These uses are an indication that political and intellectual elites in Central and Western Europe had a temporalized and expansive vision of Europe. For these intellectuals, Europe was not just a geographical unit with natural or conventionally fixed borders. For them, Europe was a cultural concept comprising a bundle of values and civilizational standards capable of transcending a particular geographical space. From their point of view, Europe was a temporalized concept, a concept that evoked a horizon of expectation, not just for the Europeans themselves, but for many others and potentially all nations and regions of the world. 
From today's perspective, it is easy to denounce such universalistic visions of Europe as naive or Eurocentric or Orientalist, but I do not consider it the historian's task to adopt such a moralizing attitude. In my view, it is much more rewarding to explain how and why concepts such as, for example, Europeanization emerged at this particular moment, how they were related to specific experiences and how in turn they contributed to raise expectations. What I just said with regard to Europeanization is an example for an approach which I apply more or less consistently throughout the book, and this is an approach informed by conceptual history, Begriffsgeschichte, you mentioned this already, that this is a topic of research I'm really uh, sort of very strongly engaged in. And this is an approach by which I try to show the linkages and mutual reinforcements between semantics, practices, and social structures. My attempt at being sensitive to the contemporary uses of language, especially conceptual contests, is perhaps one point in which my history of 19th century Europe distinguishes itself from other comprehensive histories on the period available on the market. So I try to bring these little kind of stories of conceptual contests into my history. And this was just one example. Let me turn to the second point mentioned earlier, the temporal dimension. What is the 19th century? What makes it a distinguishable period? Now, first of all, the editors want the 19th century to, to be uh, a strict, more or less strict 19th century in the calendar sense. Uh, and that, is, that means that my story should begin around 1800 and end around 1900. And uh, because the next volume starts around 1900 and uh, the volume before was supposed to end around 1800. So this is, if you are engaged in such a collective enterprise, you have to stick to this. And this, of course, requires a discussion of periodization. I had a nice discussion with the, the author of the book on Europe in the 20th century, uh, right across the street in the British <coughs> Museum. The author is uh, Christoph Cornelissen. And we had a sort of discussion how we dealt with this. And uh, I said to him in the end that I will finish my book with the funeral of Queen Victoria, which is 1901, uh, which is very practical. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I will come back to this. So one could start with the search for events at or around 1800 uh, and 1900 that have a symbolic significance of more profound tendencies of the period. For the beginning, that is fairly easy. One can hardly deny that Napoleon's coup d'etat of 9th November 1799, very conveniently dated, was the starting point for the Napoleonic expansion in Europe, and more importantly, for the spread, adaption, or rejection of French revolutionary principles all over Europe. One could argue that the French Revolution itself was more or less a French event. It only became a European event when, when the principles uh, uh, sort of elaborated in it, uh, became really spread all over Europe, and the whole of Europe was, was really forced to engage with these principles, even those countries who never did so, countries like Britain, Russia, or the Ottoman Empire. But they, too, were forced to, to, to grapple with these uh, French principles, as they were called in Britain at the time. Uh, and this was a process that lasted all through the century and beyond. Napoleon's drive into Europe, therefore, seems to be a convenient starting point, Better, actually, I find, than 1789 or 1815. One might discuss this. The search is much more difficult, the search for symbolic events, for the end of the period. But there are a number of events with a symbolic significance around 1900. 
we have um, several European defeats. Um, defeat of Spain against the USA in 1898, defeat of the Italians against the Ethiopians, 1896, Russia's defeat against Japan in 1905, the Boxer Rebellion in China, which was not exactly a defeat, but uh, something uh, approaching uh, a defeat, at least in a moral sense. All four events signify the beginning of the end of Europe's capacity to impose its will on the rest of the world. So it's, in a way, uh, it's a long process since, and I know that the European empires have st still expanded afterwards, but uh, these uh, defeats by non-European countries mark, nevertheless, the beginning of the end of Europe's capacity uh, of imperialism. Uh, another event, symbolic uh, as well, is the peace conference at The Hague in 1899, now nearly forgotten, but this signifies, at least to me, that there were indeed other options available than the drift towards the catastrophic European war, and that the contemporaries of around 1900 indeed saw other options, uh, not just uh, an inevitable first war. Uh, another symbolic event of a totally different kind is uh, the publishing of Sigmund Freud's Traumdeutung, the interpretation of dreams in the same year, 1899, signifying the loss of control about the unconscious in the human mind and a changing view of, uh, on the human self more generally. Or finally, uh, already mentioned, the death and funeral of Queen Victoria, 1901, which not just in Britain was seen as the end of an era characterized by a set of social and moral values to which the Queen had lent her name. One must admit, though, and I do admit that all these events are overshadowed by the year 19, years 1914 to 18, whose pan-European significance is by far greater than that of any event that happened around 1900. On the other hand, I would say that I'm positively grateful to the editors for setting 1900 as an end date for my book because that allows me to write Europe's 19th century history as an open-ended story, not one that leads inevitably into the catastrophe of the Great War. It's a better position to write uh, such a book. Uh, so it gives me the opportunity of writing, give, giving the 19th century a bit of a more optimistic uh, uh, touch, <laughs> uh, which it otherwise doesn't have in many respects. Leaving a Aside the question of symbolic dates, it appears more useful to regard the decades around 1800 and 1900 as periods of accelerated transition. And here again it is easy to define such transitions for the beginning, but it is a bit more difficult to find transitions uh, at the end of this period. First then as to the decades around 1800, historiography has some hypothesis to offer why 1800 or the decades around 1800 are a period of transition uh, in Europe. Uh, first, we have Eric Hobsbawm's description of the period as a dual revolution, political and industrial. And we have Christopher Bailey's, uh, already mentioned Christopher Bailey's interpretation as the first age of global imperialism. And we have uh, the interpretation of Reinhard Koselik, um, one who argued uh, that these decades, the Sattelzeit, as he called it, saw the emergence of a new future-oriented conception of history and going along with it a redefinition of social and political vocabularies on a broad scale. Basically, I agree with all these interpretations of the time around 1800 as a transition period to what we are now used to call modernity. 
There can be no doubt that the industrialization of Britain served as a model and set the pace for the successive industrializations across the whole continent. Pretty much in a similar way, the promissory notes contained in the French Revolutionary Declaration served as reference points for subsequent uh, claims for freedom, emancipation, and equal treatment by all sorts of groups and individuals all through the 19th century. Peasants, slaves, women, workers, religious minority, ethnic groups, and so on, they all referred to these promissory notes contained in the revolutionary declarations. And as to the transition to global imperialism, I would establish a strong link between this and the new developmental vision of history that, according to Kozelek, took hold of Europeans' minds around 1800. European elites imagined themselves as forming the avant-garde in a process that would eventually lead all mankind into a better future. They used concepts such as evolution and civilization for progressive comparisons between themselves and others. They compared themselves with non-Europeans as well as with peripheral Europeans on those terms. These were comparisons that divided Europe and the world into those in advance and the latecomers, or those being too late. It is a powerful figure of argument that has been prominent ever since the decades around 1800, a figure of argument that lent support to and served to justify Europe's expansionary drive into the world. I cannot see any comparable transitions of a similarly profound nature in the decades around 1900. Indeed, all the processes just mentioned, uh, industrialization, reference to the promissory notes in the revolutionary declarations and uh, the, the progressive comparisons. All this went on uh, into the 20th century, with the possible exceptions of uh, the imperialism. One might argue, though, that it was only in the decades around 1900 that broad masses of the people became really affected in their everyday lives by the movements that had begun around 1800, more or less as elite movements or in single countries. Industrialization, politicization, democratization, shrinking of space through transport revolution, mass communication, and so on. And one might add to this that with regard to global imperialism, the years around 1900 not only disrupted European faith and the legitimacy of Europeans, Europe's dominance in the world, but effectively began to undermine it. The promises of the spread of European civilization acquired an ugly face, becoming increasingly racialist and violent. So much for the spatial and temporal dimensions of my book. Um, and I would now, look, now like to use the last I don't know how much I have, 12 minutes or so, 15 minutes of my talk to address the issue of possible master narratives that could serve as threads that might give the book some sort of coherence. In a more traditional vein, one might uh, choose between uh, an optimist and a pessimist way of telling the history of 19th century Europe. As an optimist, one would describe the 19th century as the fulfillment of the promises laid down in the declarations of rights which stood at its beginning. In that case, one could emphasize the unfolding of individual freedom of choice and collective self-determination. One could stress the transition to democracy in many parts of Europe and the acquisition of autonomy or even sovereignty by peoples and nations who had been subject to imperial rule. One could also tell many stories of ultimately successful emancipation movements, those of the peasants in the first place, but also of the slaves, 
of religious minorities, the Jews, the Jews for example, of suppressed ethnicities, of women. Looking towards the end of the period, one would appreciate the beginnings of the welfare state. And one would add to all these elements of progress the material facts of greater life expectancies, growing standards of living, and the disappearance of hunger and many infectious diseases. So this is the progressive optimist view. As a pessimist, one could easily identify the reverse sides of all these examples of alleged progress. In that case, one would point to the exclusionary effects that were necessarily contained in all definitions of citizenship and collective sovereignty. One would have to describe the growth of aggressive nationalism, anti-Semitism, social Darwinism, and racism. One would explain the new social inequalities, for example, between men and women, brought about by welfare legislation. Following Michel Foucault, one would uncover the disciplining effects of state institutions like prisons, hospitals, workhouses, schools, the military, the police, etc. Following Karl Marx, one would criticize the alienation of workers in the production process and many other things. I actually realize that Karl Marx appears quite often in my book. I don't know why, but, but uh, I mean, he's really a 19th century person. Uh, some, other, some other favorites, uh, too. And looking backwards from today's perspective, one could describe the 19th century as the onset of an unprecedented exploitation of the planet's resources and as an age of blatant hypocrisy with respect to Europe's so-called civilizing missions in the, colony, uh, in the colonies. Both narratives, the optimist and the pessimist, are strongly informed by particular views of the 20th century. The idea behind the optimist variant is modernization theory, as it was formulated, for example, by uh, people like T.H. Marshall and many others in the Trente Années Glorieuses between the 1950s and the 1970s. By contrast, the pessimist variant points either towards the dark continent described by Mark Mazower, the continent of genocides, totalitarian regimes, and ethnic cleansing, or more mildly, towards our own post-boom age of permanent economic crisis, political insecurity, and moral instability. You may have guessed that my own version of 19th century Europe will neither reproduce the optimist nor follow the pessimist narrative, while not denying that there was a fulfillment of promises in some respects. I will also stress the ambivalences and unintended consequences which always went along with so-called progress. For both components of the narrative, the progressive and the more ambivalent or downright negative ones, I can and do rely to a large extent but of course not uncritically on the self-descriptions of European contemporaries themselves. Especially the last chapter of the book will be partly devoted to a critical review of backward-looking narratives produced by contemporary European intellectuals, such as, for example, Max Weber or Benedetto Croce. There are a couple of other narratives which will play a role in certain chapters of my book without ever taking on the character of a master narrative for the whole. Here I will only mention one or perhaps two of them. Uh, one is, would be a his, the history of globalization, or to use a Bielefeld phrase, the emergence of world society. Uh, world historians, there's a center for world society studies in Bielefeld, and they use, uh, prefer this to globalization. Uh, world historians like Chris, Christopher Bailey and Jürgen Osterhammel nowadays tend to organize their story around a narrative of increasing global interconnectedness 
and as a corollary, they describe a new dialectic between the creation of more uniformity on the one hand and the desire to stress differences on the other hand. On a more basic level, there is now a consensus among economic, cultural, and political historians that the second half of the 19th century up to the First World War saw an unprecedented upsurge in global flows of goods, peoples, and ideas, and that Western Europe was an important, if not the most important, focal point in which almost all those chains of interaction which constituted the globalization process fused. It would be tempting to use these world historical narratives as a template for writing an inner European history of entanglements, networks, and flows between European core countries and European peripheries. And uh, however interesting as such a story of increasing intertwinements might be, it would be, in my view, overemphasize one particular dimension of European history at the expense of many others. But uh, this is certainly a perspective uh, which uh, is important, especially for the half, second half of the century. The other, which I would only briefly mention, is, uh, strangely enough, another Bielefeld, uh, not a historian, but a sociologist, uh, uh, hardly known in England, Niklas Luhmann, some of you might know him, um, who describes uh, the period I'm writing on, especially the late 18th and the early 19th century, as a period of functional differentiation. That means that, that uh, uh, the world is no longer uh, organized in a stratified way, or uh, let's say in a way that, that classes and ranks and orders are the most important structural uh, element uh, in societies, but that function systems, the arts, the economics, the polit uh, politics, uh, uh, science, and so on, each have their own rules, their own codes, uh, which decide how people interact in these systems. So that is uh, basically, very basically, uh, I hope no system theorist is in the room uh, and will involve me in a discussion on this. Uh, but this is basically the idea that uh, a stratified society is replaced in that period by a functionally differentiated society. This is an interesting idea which works very well, for example, if you want to explain certain developments in the arts and the sciences. I use it as a, as a theorem. Can you say this? A theorem? Theorem uh, for, for <laughs> describing... Uh, the the, the uh, autonomous or the increasing autonomization of uh, the arts and also the sciences, for example. But I have difficulties in using it as a general <coughs> template for write, writing the whole history. But I use it for certain uh, for certain parts. So uh, I try to underlie uh, to to to, to uh, use some theories, but uh, I cannot uh, bring myself to uh, write. Uh, the whole book in, in one theoretical uh, vein. If I had to opt for one, only one master narrative, it would be the apparently irresistible dynamism, for good or for bad, which seized all European countries and nearly all spheres of life. How to explain that dynamism within Europe and of Europe as a whole compared to other world regions requires some reflections. Now it appears to me uh, with this, I would, would not mean that there was stagnation everywhere else, but uh, it is uncontestable that uh, Europe was very dynamic in that time. So I'm not judging on other regions by saying that. Now, it appears to me that much of that dynamism was generated by endogenous, endogenous, endogenous? Do you? 
I'm, I'm never sure how one pronounces this, endogenous factors, by processes which resulted out of inner European interactions. It seems to me that exogenous factors, incoming impulses from non-European world regions, only played a secondary role, with perhaps one exception for the last third of the century, North America, more particularly the USA, participated actively and in every respect in the dynamism which characterized Europe. One of the endogenous factors that were responsible for Europe's astonishing dynamism in the 19th century was a new developmental vision of history described earlier on, a vision that emerged towards the end of the, the 18th century. That developmental vision of history served as a kind of mental dispositif for setting in motion comparisons along a temporal scale. Comparisons, and especially the language of progressive comparisons, were a major driving force in Europe's 19th century history. Most of these comparisons were imagined as competitions, metaphorically speaking as race courses. Europe in the 19th century was driven by, perhaps one may even say obsessed, by, with comparisons and competitions. Comparisons and competitions between businesses, between nation states, between empires, between all sorts of organizations and social groups. These comparisons in the shape of competitions were not restricted to the economic field, where, of course, their incidence was felt most acutely. They reached out to all spheres of life. Europeans compared themselves in regard of civilizational comforts, standards of education, cultural and technological achievements, degrees of political liberty, emancipation of formerly underprivileged groups, capability of nations to govern themselves efficiently, and so on. Europe's peripheral empires, the Russian and the Ottoman empires, were forced into reform policies such as peasants' emancipation or the equal treatment of religious groups through unfavorable comparisons with the core countries. And these were comparisons which they did themselves. It was not only comparisons which uh, the Western countries imposed on them. Acquiring prestige on the one hand, avoiding shame and blame on the other hand, were the moving emotions driving those comparisons. So pride and prestige, shame and blame are the sort of the moving emotions and the driving, the real driving factors in this story of comparisons and competitions. It is obvious that without an underlying developmental vision of the course of history, which by 1800 was a particular European phenomenon, this dynamism would not have been possible. So this is the underlying cause of the second endogenous factor responsible for Europe's dynamism were the promissory notes, as also mentioned before. Promissory notes is a quotation by Björn Wittrock, a Swedish sociologist, by the way. I should mention this. The promises contained in the revolutionary declarations of right. These promises delegitimated an ancien regime type of society based on privileges, ranks, and stratification. The gradual and by 1900 almost complete disappearance of social stratification based on privileges in a strong legal sense of the term in German Ständegesellschaft, was certainly one of the few long-term processes that were really characteristic for continental Europe's 19th century. In England, it was somewhat different. The promises contained in the declarations of rights triggered cascades of demands for individual inclusion and collective self-determination. One of the interesting points about these promises and the corresponding demands, a point which helped to keep Europe's uh, dynamism going was their potentially conflicting nature. The revolutionary declarations could be interpreted as promising two conflicting things at the same time, a right for every individual and every group to being treated equally with everyone else, and at the same time, a right for individuals and groups uh, to being treated differently from all others. 
women should be treated in the same way as men, but as, at the same time, they should be recognized as different and therefore treated differently in some respects. Workers should have the same right as contracting partners in the market, but at the same time, they demanded compensation for their unequal starting position in a society which was legitimized only insofar as it gave everyone a fair chance. So we have always this double, sort of double bind. Uh, equal demands for equal treatment, but at the same time a demand for being recognized as different and certain demands hooked onto this. And uh, ethnic groups demanded an equal right to form nation states of their own. Yet at, as such, they claimed to be essentially different from all others. And their claim was that this difference should be recognized by all others. Such conflicts turning around demands for universal equality and recognition of difference at the same time created endless paradoxes and ever new demands. And it was precisely the paradoxical nature of these claims that kept European societies in motion. So these are the factors that drove the European dynamism, in, in my opinion, and which will sort of be threads in uh, my book. One last point. It may be difficult for us to recognize the dynamisms just described, the dynamism set in motion by proliferating comparisons and competitions and by endless paradoxical demands for equality and difference as something specific for a certain historical period, the 19th century. The reason why we don't recognize these dynamisms as historically specific is, of course, that they are still part of our own life world of the 21st century. However, I would argue that around 1800, these communicative patterns of endless comparisons and competitions and of demanding equal treatment and recognition of difference at the same time were still experienced as being new. Around 1800, these communicative patterns emerged in Europe and North America. By 1900, they had been adopted by peoples and nations all over the globe, and today these communicative patterns are still with us. And in that respect, we still live in a modernity that first unfolded in 19th century Europe. And in that respect, uh, we are, I would still say that uh, the concept of modernity makes sense. Uh, but uh, the 19th century is a period in which this unfolded, and it unfolded first in Europe. So that would be the sort of thread uh, or the threads in my history. And that's where I would like to stop. And thank you for your attention. Thank you very much.